The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. But they came to me and said, Joe, just in case, you know, we're going to suggest that you play under an assumed name. So um, my name was Jim Jones from Holland University. <laughs> That's one of fun, yeah. It's ironic that the enduring image of Joe Klecko was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange because he was much more of a warehouse guy from Hempstead than a financial trader from Scarsdale. The nickname is still one of the best in NFL history, the New York Sack Exchange, featuring the four defensive line stars of the 1980s Jets, Mark Gastineau, Marty Lyons, Abdul Salam, and a babyface Klecko decked out in their green jet jerseys, holding that beautiful throwback helmet. The poster adorned so many bedroom walls in the Tri-State area in the 80s. They're in full uniform, cleats and all, standing on the floor of the exchange with ticker tape and trading slips strewn about. It's simultaneously the quintessential New York sports and culture snapshot of the era. The dual excitement of this young Jets team and the onset of a financial boom decade in New York. For the Jets, it was never quite as good as the 82 AFC Championship, which is probably why it took 35 years for Klecko to get to the Hall of Fame. But it was worth the wait. Klecko was perhaps the most versatile defensive lineman ever, making Pro Bowls at three different positions from the late 70s through the late 80s. There was the flood in Miami, the belittling from Joe Walton, and a friendship with Burt Reynolds, which led to multiple movie roles. Not bad for a kid from blue-collar Chester, PA, who faked his way through semi-pro ball and never thought about playing in the NFL. This is Joe Klecko's New York accent. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great. Now, now we have this buzz going on. Great to have that HOF next to your name. How does it feel to hear the title in the introduction, Joe Klecko, Pro Football Hall of Famer? You know, it, it, it's sinking in more and more. Uh, I was in sitting talking to a friend of mine in his office one day and uh he's been my buddy since about 40 years now and he said to me he goes you know he goes you've got to learn to think like you belong and you know afterward waiting 30 some years it, it's sinking in you know the the awards banquet last week before the super bowl started it and then all the hoopla up there and then i believe that cherry on the top will be the time in canton though but it's it's still sinking in. It's it's not there yet, totally. After all this weight, you know, it's it's a dream come true. If we went back to the beginning, your roots in Chester, PA, this is a this is a town much like so many around America where before World War II, manufacturing, lots of jobs, and then post war, jobs start departing, manufacturing starts leaving, and there's there's gonna be a hard scrabble life there. Does growing up in Chester, PA, with those as your your backdrop, does that inform how your work ethic was developed and you kind of being maybe an underdog that had to fight your way to the top? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. Reason being is because, you know, I worked almost all the time since I was 12 years old. Uh, my old had owned a, a heating and air business and oil and cleaning heaters and. I used to get stuck in them big old heaters with my cousin and I would be cleaning heaters and delivering oil in the winter. 
And, uh, you know, I, I did that for many years and got into construction and, uh, you know, I used to drive trucks and operate equipment and, you know, I, that, I was destined to be that from being from Chester, as you explained, a working class, you know, uh, neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I never thought about really, I never thought about going to college, never thought, ever thought about playing pro football because, you know, in, in my young days, uh, pop order didn't even exist. You know, it was uh, local schools, some high schools, some grade schools had uh, had football. I mean, high school did, but there was not many young uh, places for us, you know, to play football. So baseball was a sport in them days, and I was pretty good at that. But, uh, you know, football wasn't even thought, a thought process. Was football a way out? I mean, in terms of all those blue-collar jobs that you had growing up, was was there something that said, I, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life? Or would you have been okay being a, an HVAC repairman or any of those other jobs that you talked about? And it just so happened that, hey, football was a path. The, the, the after there, because, you know, I, I never said, oh, this is a way out, you know. Uh, I didn't look at it like that. I thought I would, you know, until like my junior or senior year in college where, they, you know, scouts were starting to look, uh, I, you know, I thought I was always going to be that guy to go home and, and get back to work and, you know, settle down to a normal family life and, and you know, in a neighborhood that had uh, the working class ethic. I always thought I'd be that. I I never looked at it as, as you know, football being a way out because, you know, I mean, even when I was uh, drafted in the pro football, I mean, the salaries in them days, uh, actually, when I came home my first year with the New York Jets, I worked for a company uh, in called Robbins Motor Transportation, and uh, I went in and uh, I had a load waiting for me to go the day I came back from uh, the last game we played. Wow, is that right? You were still doing those jobs even when you came home with a paycheck from the NFL? Paycheck from the NFL. I was a sixth-round draft choice. I made $21,000 my first year in the NFL. Wow. Wow, boy, that is mind-blowing. That tells you the different scale of economics going on today in the NFL. And so one of my favorite stories about you is that before you went to college, before you went to Temple, you actually played – semi-professional football under an assumed name from a <laughs> fake college was this to to get a paycheck or was this just to get your your physicality out what what was the reason what was the story that must have been in a crazy league well it it, re- it, was, it was a crazy league it was a professional seaboard league but uh the owners of the team uh they realized i could play and uh I was playing with ex-college players and a couple guys actually one played for the Bears and one played for the Eagles for a couple of years. Wow. And I was a kid out of high school and uh, they taught, they came to me and said, Joe, just in case, you know, we're going to suggest that you play under an assumed name. So um, my name was Jim Jones from Holland University. <laughs> that's one of fun. Yeah. That's incredible. So you end up going to Temple University and you get drafted by the Jets in the sixth round. And before that, you go through a couple of hardships, at least emotionally, from people that you respect. There was a high school coach at the time that told you, get out of here. You're embarrassing yourself. You're too small. And then you had it out with your dad as well. You wanted your dad to come see you play. 
and you didn't play that day, and he kind of ripped you a new one, and that set, I'm sure, in motion a I'll prove you wrong. That 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 feels like a lot of a lot of humiliation to go through as a young person trying to find your way. How did it affect you? You know, it wasn't. I I didn't look at it like that. I mean, my dad. I remember that story is actually. I came home from my first game and I didn't play. And uh, before I left, I told my dad. I said I might have a chance to play today. And my dad was a, a a local hero, more or less. You know, from sports. He he was he was a a local legend in, in Sandlot football, more or less semi-pro leagues and stuff. And, uh, you know, when I came home that first time, he was mad at me. Wouldn't talk to me because I didn't play. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I never realized, that, you know, how deep the, the feelings went to my father about this. So, anyway, I went back and, you know, I, I knew I could play. And what happened was that a guy got hurt in front of me, uh, you know, and actually he was a two-way guy. He played center and defensive tackle. He got hurt. So they put me in about the fourth game, and then, well, the rest is history. They could never take me out again. That's pretty amazing. And so it ends up launching this incredible career for you. And, you know, you end up getting to the New York Jets and drive yourself into becoming from a sixth rounder who clearly has no job security into a regular starter. And for all the offensive linemen that you battled, I mean, Hall of Famers like Dwight Stevenson, John Hanna, go down the list. One of the things that they always said was you never took a playoff. No matter how many points you guys were down or up, you never took a playoff. And you said, this is because I never wanted to lose anything, including a play. How intense was your focus to go through entire games and and use those individual battles on every single play, no matter what the score was? To me, it was easy. And it really was. I mean, you know, uh, that's where I think really your your pride comes in. And not in it. Not the vain way I'm talking about, right? I was never that kind of self-promoter, but I, I didn't want anybody ever to be, you know, like today you see guys get dominated and other players pointing at them and stuff. And, you know, I, 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 not that that happened a lot when we played, but I never wanted to be the guy that was dominated on any play. I always wanted to be the one that dominated. Like, you know, it could have been 30 to nothing or 30 to 10, whatever it was. I didn't care. I mean, you were going to have to bring it to me all day long because that's the only way I knew how to play. Well, you guys didn't win a lot of games early. You come into a, a Jets franchise that that's trying to reboot after what had happened in the late 60s, early 70s, before you guys hit the playoffs again back in the early 80s. So how did you take those losses? I mean, if it was so important to win, was it hard to deal with a lot of losing? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I you know, like you're like, my wife hated me at the end of the day. <laughs> when I came home, you know, I was no fun, you know. No, understandably so. I mean, there. I, I just think that if you learn to take losing, you know, easy, it becomes easy to do. And uh, I never, ever, ever took losing very easy. I, I, hated, I hated it when I was in high school. I couldn't sit. We were a pretty good football team in high school. We won the Catholic League in Philadelphia, which was a good league. And we won it. We lost the city championship. And I don't. I don't remember. I wouldn't. I went out with my best friend, who was a defensive end, and we went out to Arby's and sat in Arby's and you know sat there and ate ourselves to death after ice. We we won. Go. We we don't want to talk to nobody. What does Joe Klecko eat to eat himself to death at Arby's after a big <laughs> high school loss? 
A lot of beef and cheddars. It was good. (laughs) Good. So finally, the team starts turning under Walt Michaels. And in 1981, the New York Sack Exchange is kind of created and coined. Yourself, Abdul Salam, Marty Lyons, Mark Asano become kind of a, certainly a New York sensation, if not a national sensation as well. So now here's the taste of the Jets doing well, and it's happening in New York, and you're in your 20s, and you're on posters and ringing in the New York Stock Exchange. What is that moment like to think about where you started from as a sixth rounder in Chester, PA, to now in New York, and you're in the limelight? You're talking about turnaround. I mean, you know, we started to get recognition and stuff like that, especially after the games. They always wanted to talk to us, and, you know, that was even something different there because – News coverage back then, of course, on the New York teams we weren't doing well was not great. But the the, the biggest, I mean, uh, I mean, moment of that days was when we we were doing a a, a shoot for Pro Ked. They wanted us all to we had to be in their shoes. We went down to the New York Stock Exchange when it closed, and we went in to do the shoot on the exchange floor. And you know, where all the ticker tapes are still laying all over the place and stuff. Where they where they still at that back then? Yeah. So uh, uh, when we when we got on the floor, you know, it was just unbelievable. A lot of the guys that were 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 on the floor working stayed, you know, and we were just convincing with all them guys and carrying on. We got out of the car. We got so little fix this up, you know, and that's a rarity in itself. Okay, <laughs> so we get that limousine right there on Wall Street, in front of the bull, and we get out there. There's people from wall to wall on Wall Street clapping for us. I'm like, where the hell are we? You know, it's like, this is unbelievable. And that was our real first introduction, you know, into the limelight, if you will. Is it tough to navigate the trappings of being young and famous in New York City in the 80s? Oh, yeah. I mean, everywhere you go, people were tugging at you and doing things like that. But, you know. It's just like anything else, though. If you have a perspective, you know, whether it be, you know, your upbringing or whatever, or, you know, you have a grounded situation like a mother and father that, you know, keep your feet on the ground. I don't care what it was. I may, uh, I may come back, you know, from being out all night, stuff like that, and, and uh, I was at home, and my, like my mother would be watching the kids or something, and she would just, where the hell have you been? You know, like, or <laughs> grounded, you know? And, uh, I mean, I was married too. I mean, it's not like mom was, but still that, that's how we grew up. And, you know, it was the answer to, you know, the hires to be, if you will. But, uh, you know, there was an ethics inside of you that, that kept you grounded. So I wonder how you might have clashed with Mark Gastineau because Mark was so flashy, so flamboyant, he was so showy, and you were so understated. You went about your jobs differently, but you were on the same defensive line. Did it bother you that he acted like that, and did it cause any tension between you two? Yeah, when we played, there was always that tension between us because, again, he was flamboyant and I was not. You know, I saw, I told my son Danny that one day, but Danny, Danny got in the NFL, and he has a defensive lineman, and he got drafted by the Patriots. And, you know, I told him in college, and he was real good in college, and I said to him, I says, if you ever choose to celebrate after sacking a quarterback, hurry up and turn around. Because the <laughs> first person you're going to see kicking your ass is going to be me. So, you know, uh, yeah, Mark and I were very 
quite the opposites. And there was tension at times. But the one thing I knew was to get to where we wanted to get, him and I had to be good. And we were good. And we did to succeed in doing good. So it made us win. And that was one thing that I was gracious of. That, you know, that was our first year that after him and Marty came in in the draft choices, that was the first year. The next year we went to playoffs. You guys were connected, obviously, by the poster, connected by the nickname, the New York Sack Exchange. Did you four hang out socially, or did you hang out and do the things that you're talking about uh, with other people on the team? No, no. Mark, 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 Marty and I were together a lot. Uh, you know, and uh, Abdul was a quiet source, so, he, you know, he was very rarely out. But, no, Mark, Mark was in a different crowd than we were. Yeah, Mark was in a crowd, I'm sure, that was a little Hollywood, a little faster, and maybe a little showier than probably you and Marty Lyons that are going to throw back a few a few beers at a dive bar in Queens somewhere. That would be more like exactly. <laughs> so, 81, you make the playoffs, but unfortunately you're beaten in the postseason by the Buffalo Bills. The next year in 1982 is a big run for you guys, even though it's a strike-shortened season. You finish 6-3, and three, make the playoffs. It's kind of a, a larger expanded postseason because of a strike-shortened year, but you guys win multiple games in the postseason. Going into the 82 playoffs, did you have any momentum, any rhythm, considering how short the regular season was, or was it like starting over an entire season again with the way the playoffs were set up? I think that the one thing I talk about was our youth, and I, I, I believe that, the year before we started by going to the Buffalo, our first playoff game, and we were doing things. And then after that, you know, it was like all we had to do was play hard. I don't I don't think we really distinguish ourselves as the, the in-depth knowledge as you would have today about momentum and so forth to start as far as going into the playoff. We, we played hard. We played hard every week, offensively and defensively. And we had – Two very good things I think that you need to play uh, in, in a league is the offensive and defensive line. Our offensive line was fantastic. Our defensive line was fantastic. And those were the two denominators, I believe, that you could build championships around. And then we had great talent. I mean, we had Freeman McNeil, Wesley Walker. I mean, Johnny Lamb Jones for speed. And, of course, we had the sack exchange and some pretty good linebackers on our side. So... You know, and waiting there as long as we played hard, and we did that, you know, against Cincinnati, against the Raiders. I mean, Lance Mel showed himself up, you know, by interceptions and by linebackers, and, you know, and we put some pressure on him too. But uh, I think it was not as much as a, the buildup as we just kept to our, our, our game plan of, of play hard. And that's what we did. Everybody gave their all all the time. That postseason that you bring up, you guys beat the Bengals in the wild card round. In the divisional round, you go to Los Angeles to take on the Raiders. This playoff game is insane. You guys jump out to a two-score lead. Raiders come all the way back. Then you guys take the lead again late. You get an interception from linebacker Lance Mel that appears to end the game. You guys are going to the AFC Championship game. You hand it off to Freeman McNeil. He fumbles it back to the Raiders, and then it takes another Mel interception to seal the game. You guys are headed to Miami for the AFC title game. Hoop and hollering. What a win that was. One of the great playoff wins in Jets franchise history. What do you remember about that day? 
that's it. That's it. Just as I said, though, that's the young bunch of guys that just accomplished the great feat, you know. And the the one thing we were is we were together. We were always, always battling, you know, especially going against the Raiders, Bucket, you know, Marcus Allen, you know. Here's a team with real, some history behind it. And, you know, we're going against the, the immovable object, and we, we came out on top. It was it was a tremendous feeling. Like I said, Lance, we, we owe Lance a lot for that game. <laughs> he had huge plays down the stretch, a pair of interceptions to seal it, and you guys are ending up in the AFC Championship game. Then we hit the AFC title game of the Orange Bowl in Miami against Don Shula's Miami Dolphins, and there's a huge rainstorm the night before. You guys show up to the OB the next morning for this game, and the tarp has been left off the field. There's puddles of water everywhere. And the conspiracy theory that exists 40-some-odd years later, that even my uncle brings up at Thanksgiving almost every year, is Don Shula meant to do that to prevent Freeman McNeil from cutting back. Do you think that Shula had sabotage on his mind that day? I, I really don't. You know, because, well, first of all, they did make it a rule, though, after that game, that during playoff game, if there were any inclement weather to be, that the fields were to be tarred. And that, that rule didn't exist before that game. And then, you know, did he? I don't even know if anybody ever tarped the field before that game. I don't know if that was a situation that comes up in the NFL. I think natural grass was the way to go a lot back then. There was a few turf fields at all. But a lot of guys who had the natural bread, I mean, let's think about it. You think Cleveland, I mean, the, there was, was the worst. You played on painted dirt there, but, you know, <laughs> in Miami, Miami, at least they had grass. And, uh, you know, they had fields that were made to drain better and not hold water. But I don't think there was ever a rule about tarping the field until that, that game. That day, your offense could not do anything, and unfortunately, quarterback Richard Todd threw five interceptions, three to A.J. Dewey, and steals the win for the Dolphins. They go to the Super Bowl. That was the only AFC championship game you would play in. Does it hurt today to think you came that close, but you couldn't get over the hump to the Super Bowl? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say it hurts, but, you know, disappointing without a doubt, you know, because – well, we're thinking, you know, here we are climbing that ladder. First year against Buffalo, the playoffs first game. We Now then we go to the AFC Championship game. Okay, now we're going to go to the next year. We'll be back. It didn't work out like that, you know? So, you know, you know the, the fine line between making the playoffs, not making the playoffs, and then going that far in the playoffs is so thin in the NFL that, you know, we, we didn't realize how tough it would be to get back again. Was there resentment towards Richard Todd from the defense or the rest of the team because he had such an awful day on that big stage? Absolutely not. One thing Richard was, Richard was a competitor. And I'll just give you a little instance about Richard Todd, what a great guy he was. You know, he didn't want to go out on Friday nights and stuff. Richard would take my son, Michael, my oldest son, and he would go to Richard's apartment with him, and they'd watch movies. Wow. Yeah, Richard was Richard was uh, a... a a much better guy than he's ever been, you know, uh, exploited as, you know, especially because of the loss. I mean, he did make AJ do a lot of money, but you know, <laughs> it's not that. Did we blame him for it? No, absolutely not. If it wasn't for Richard, we're not there. I mean, the 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 the, the, 
year before uh, in the uh, Buffalo game, we're down three touchdowns. And, you know, the opening kickoff, Bruce Harper fumbles in for, and gives them a touchdown. And who brings us back? Richard Todd brought us back. I mean, he threw an interception in the end zone, the Simpson in, in, the, in the latter part of the fourth quarter. But if it wasn't for him, we're not even there. And the same thing through that strike short year. I mean, Richard was the reason we got to where we were. Bad in our running game, but uh, it was uh, it was nothing to be, you know, uh, yell about about Richard. Was he handed, you would have an up-close and personal account of this, was he handed a tough, tough deck of cards considering he was the next after Joe Namath and you could never really rise to the Namath celebrity or success? And because of that, maybe it was an unfair criticism that he kind of naturally got right from the start? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alabama, Alabama. Jets, Jets. I mean, Rich had a tough road to all, all the way, yeah. you know. Yeah. They both came from Alabama. They both wound up with the Jets. And then, of course, Joe made history with what he did. And, of course, Joe became an icon not only in the Jets in the AFL, he became an icon in professional football. And for Richard to follow that up, it was very hard for Richard, I think, because the media would bring it up in the very beginning a lot. But, uh, listen, I believe Richard had a pretty good career. I believe that in the end he got shortchanged by Joe Walton. I don't think he should have ever got traded. But, you know, they looked at Kenny O'Brien coming in as being the next senior with that draft with Marino at Elway and uh, Easton and all. So uh, I think Richard was looked like, he, you know, he would be uh, moved over. So, uh, uh, But I think he took a short stick by having to follow Joe, yes. You considered Walt Michaels, your head coach at the time, to be a father figure, and then he abruptly resigned at the end of the 82 season. This is when you guys are coming off the AFC Championship game. That obviously throws everything into a tumultuous situation, but he's dealing with his mother, who's terminally ill at the end of the season. Were you guys aware that he was dealing with that and that it was draining on him so much that he was considering retirement and ultimately would? No, absolutely not. And and you could see that it was a lot bothering him at the end of the season. When he went to say goodbye to it, he didn't even address the team, you know, at the, at the end of that day. Uh, the general manager did, uh, Jimmy Kensel, and uh, nobody knew that. You know, nobody knew that until later, a lot of years later that we knew that. Walt was, again, Walt reminded me of my dad a lot because, like you had mentioned earlier about my high school career, my dad got mad at me for not playing. Well, Walt was the kind of guy that was, you there. You were there to do your job. And if you did your job and did it well, that's what you got paid to do. And so if you weren't giving the paddle on the back all the time, a lot of people didn't like that about Walt because, you know, a lot of people love to be patted on the back. I was used to that. I was used to getting my butt kicked where I didn't miss one play or two plays. So Walt and I got along very well because of, and again, he was a, he was a Pollock and so was I. So, you know, that, that brought <laughs> deeper. Yeah. Speaking of your Polish background, was your last name Klecko changed when it, your family no, came over? Oh, no, it, it's spelled exactly like it is, but it's an asterisk over the O, and it's Kletzko is how it's pronounced in Polish. But uh, no, that's how it was when my grandparents came here. Uh, that's how the name was spelled in Poland. But the, you know, the, the Polish. There's uh, certain uh, things in the spelling that change it a little bit. Yeah, and it, yeah. It was let's go. 
those years you were playing at Shea Stadium, a couple of years later you would end up being tenants at Giant Stadium, playing football in a baseball ballpark, but at least it was your own. What was the experience like playing football at Old Shea? You know, it was it was a big advantage to us in a way because, you know, the one thing everybody always talked about at Shea was the, was the Jets coming in for a landing, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was loud. Yeah, you, you can look above the stadium. They felt like they were on top of you, you know? Yeah. And I remember one of the field goal kickers, uh, I was talking to someone at a Pro Bowl one time, and he was telling me about our kicker actually got scared. Like when the, the Jets showed up, he <laughs> got to kick the ball. He goes, he, he shanked the ball, and it was because of the Jet that actually showed up. <laughs> you know, we, I met, you know, we did call it Marty and tell him about apply <laughs> now, you know. Uh, but he actually, it actually shook him up the boy. He shanked the kick. It really did. So teams didn't like playing it, Shay. They didn't. No, no. I remember being there as a kid to watch Mets games, and it felt like those planes were so loud it would ring your ears, and it was almost scary, like you said, because they were coming so low yeah. to LaGuardia. When you move to Giant Stadium, you you lose the aspect of having your own stadium, but you go into a, quote, football facility. Was it better from that standpoint or worse because it wasn't your own? I, I, don't, I don't think anybody looked at it like that. I mean, listen – we play eight other games on the road at eight other stadiums. You know, they're not your own. If you want to look at it like some guy looked at his play at 16 away games, uh, whatever, you know. But I don't think it affected us in any way. 1986, you guys begin the season 10-1, and one, and there are dreams of a New York Super Bowl because the Giants are on their run as well. Ultimately, the end of the season, you guys lose five games in a row. You'll still make the playoffs, but you finish at 10-6. and six. What happened in the final month plus that didn't happen earlier in the season? Lance Mell and I got hurt. I had my knee injury and I was out for the season. And Lance Mell got his knee hurt and he was out for the season. But we didn't win another game. That must have crushed you to miss the postseason in one of the rare appearances in a couple of years that you had made the playoffs again. Oh, without a doubt. You know, when they, when they went to Cleveland and they lost in Cleveland, you know, there was a couple of stupid penalties we lost uh, on the game, and, and it really was, you know, it was heartfelt that we were involved, you know, in the game. But, you know, to lose it the way we did, uh, you know, because we, we were a good football team, and, uh, you know, that was the end of the road more or less. Yeah, 10-point lead in Cleveland in the fourth quarter, but Gastineau takes a bad rough in the passer penalty, and then ultimately the Browns come back to win. For you guys, it was good teams, never great teams under Joe Walton. It wasn't what it was under Walt Michaels. Was it less satisfying playing under Coach Walton than it was for Walt since you were so close to Walt? Oh, for me, it was a big difference, without a doubt. You know, uh, you know, one of the things that Joe Walton's wife uh, tried to do is they brought all the wives in one day and had them sit in our lockers in the, in the locker room and they wanted to teach our wives the, a fight song. Oh, boy. Well, my wife and Joe Fields' wife got up and just walked out. He going, this, <laughs> this is just too much. And, uh, you know, it was like, it, yeah, I don't think Joe ever wanted to treat us like men. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the way Walt treated us. And I think that was a big downfall. Mm. What's the connection like between Jets fans, Jets players from that era? You know, it's there's a, a a kinship, no doubt. Reason being is because that I believe the name that you know the Sack Exchange created, you know, 
made made history. And you know, if you really think about it, you think about purple people eaters of fearsome foursome. The New York Sacti scene is right there with them yeah. as part of his names, you know. Uh, Remus and I were talking about it uh, on one of the podcasts we were doing out at the out at the Super Bowl, and uh, you know, he and I probably are connected to two of the coolest names ever. You know, Revis Island, yeah, New York Sack Exchange. What two great you know names to be connected to you over history, and that they, they made the test of time without a doubt. The reason why there's a connection to the fans for that reason. The only defensive player in NFL history that made a Pro Bowl at three different positions, which is an amazing accomplishment. But you were out of the game for 35 years, had been retired without going to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Then finally, you get that knock at the door. After 35 years, had you given up the dream that that would ultimately happen, or did you keep the faith? Oh, no. I always oh no. I mean, until they put me in the grave, I was going to keep I was going to keep that dream alive in my heart. <laughs> Oh no! I you know every year because you know I had the conversations with a lot of the voters year in and year out. In the very beginning, it was Paul Zimmerman. You know, God rest his soul. Doctor Z. Always, always a tremendous advocate of mine in the room. And Joe Oregon told me at one point that Joe the Lawmanor had given such a a, a wonderful you know uh, acclamation to my career during one of the voting processes that I almost made it back in the in the current day player time. But then it didn't happen, and over the the time with the seniors, uh, I was always, uh, you know, uh, ah, Joe, ah, we, we one more boat we had in Joe. I think I get the, I think we're gonna make it. But then finally, when Gary Myers, you know, called me about it, and he said, Joe, you've been nominated, you made it through the senior side. Now we just have to make the final vote, you know, on the total voting, uh, uh, all the all of the uh, writers. And then when it did happen, uh, you know, when Joe came to the door, wow, you talk about exhilarating. The video is really powerful. Even if you're not a Jets fan, that is a really powerful moment when Joe Namath comes to your door and knocks on the door <laughs> and you recognize, man, the call has come. What energy, what feeling comes over you when you recognize that? It was, it was all kinds of emotions because this is what people don't understand about that video. My wife had made me stay home from work that day for a reason. And so I'm, so I told them, I said, listen, let's get something to eat. I'm hungry. You know, <laughs> so my daughter was home and they actually called my daughter about getting me to stay home. And, uh, you know, my wife told him, my daughter told mom can make dad do anything. So we'll get him to stay home. <laughs> so I'm there, there, there. Somebody's knocking at the door and I'm waiting for them to answer. They didn't answer it. I'm going to the door actually to look for DoorDash. You know, I'm looking for somebody. <laughs> and here Joe Namath is there. And of course, there's 18 cameras behind him and him with his gold jacket. I know what this is. Yeah. So it was just, oh my Lord. And then see Joe, you know, tell me, Joe is Joe. I don't care how you look at it. Joe is a tremendous, uh, you know, being it alone, you know, just by being there. And it was just so exhilarating. And I turned around to my point and I said, hey, honey, Joe Namath came to lunch. You know? <laughs> the reason behind it, because I was actually looking for somebody to deliver food. And here Joe Namath has welcomed me to the 2023 Home of Faith. It was a, it was an, a moment to be, uh, to be uh, you know, I already talked about, you know, your first children and all that. And they're the greatest. But 
you know, you can't you can't put it in a class. It's in a class by itself. We know Joe likes to work, but even he's not delivering DoorDash, so you knew that it was <laughs> Hall of Fame time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. it was, it was, I mean, the way it turned out and everything, even when we had the introduction and the, we had the Merlin Olsen lunch they called out at the out of the Super Bowl when all of the Hall of Famers are there with us the first time we get to meet like 50 of the guys, which was cool. And they introduced us on stage and they played our knock, you know, the clip that everybody's seen. And when the audience seen mine, it was like, it was just a roar. It was, it was funny. So yeah. it, it, it was an emotional time. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, one other thing about your playing career was it opened up opportunities in Hollywood as well. You were in Smoking <laughs> the Bandit. Smoking the Bandit Two, Cannonball Run. I mean, you had you had small bit parts in four different Burt Reynolds films. So, how did that come to be? I was a truck driver in my previous life, of course, and I was noted for you know uh, all big stuff all over the, all over the country. And uh, when I came home, like I told you, from my first year, I went. I was in a Steve Jackson trailer the next day, wow. and uh, I had an article in Sport Magazine on the cover of me holding up a tractor and trailer, changing a tire. You know, it was a spoof, of course. Yeah. I, I really wasn't holding it up. <laughs> but uh, they Bert seen that. And it, it, matter of fact, my wife and I were out one night. My mom was watching the kids. And she said to me, Joey, he said, Bert Reynolds called. And I said, yeah, Bob, did you notice the boy who was it or whatever? <laughs> and she said, no, no. And he says, the, the director's going to call you back tonight at midnight. And they want you to be in a movie. I said, yeah. So Al Needham called me that night, and he was the director of the movie. And he asked me, and of course, you know, I knew Dave if I was going to make a dime. And uh, I was in the first movie I made with Bert. And then Bert and I hit it off real well. And basically, here I was. I, I had those bit parts. And I just want you to know, though, I was voted one of the 10 worst actors ever. <laughs> Special sports. <laughs> I, I think that that's unfair. I've seen all the clips. I think you did a great job. I really do. That must have been a pinch me moment when you're thinking, man, I here I am from Chester, PA. I didn't even think I was going to play college ball, let alone the NFL. And now I'm in Burt Reynolds movies and Burt and I are friends. That must have been mind-blowing to you. Oh, I, absolutely. You know, I, but the one great thing about me, I, I the boast for a second is I was, was, was grounded, you know, I never thought of myself to be, I'll I, I tell you a very quick funny story. There was a guy in Cannibal Run by the name of George Burt. George played a big part, you know, in it also. And he had an acting school here in New York. And uh, I came to him and said, George, when we go back to New York, how about we have lunch? And I went, had lunch with him and, you know, because I wanted to go to his acting school maybe, you know. And uh, we were sitting there having lunch and he kind of goes, well, Joe, you're a really good football player. I said, yeah, I said, they say that. He goes, no, he goes, you're really good, aren't you? Like he goes, what are you trying to say? He goes, I think maybe sticking with football would be a great idea. You got to burst my bubble. <laughs> that is funny. So how is life for you now? How's the life of Joe Klecko at this point? Trent, tremendous, tremendous. Uh, you know, I have five beautiful children, five beautiful grandchildren. And I tell I have I have a daughter who's still not marrying. I have one just got married, and and I told him, I said, I want 20 grandkids. Let's go. Get to work, <laughs> you guys. So, uh, no, I, I go to work every day, and and I, I, I continue, you know, 
uh, our family is the biggest part of our life. So my wife, Debbie, and I, you know, we don't, we don't travel much or do much because we enjoy the kids. The kids are, the kids are everything. And uh, now that they're having kids, it makes it even better. Well, you had just such an amazing career. And, you know, it's so rewarding, I'm sure, for you, obviously, to be in the Hall of Fame. But I think for Jets fans in general and New York in general that really always appreciated the hard work that you put in. There's a lot of blue-collar sentiments in New York, even for the glitz and the glamour. And you always reflected that really well. And so what a cool vindication for your career and all the things you accomplished, the type of person that you were. So congratulations and thanks so much. I know we said this would only go maybe 20 minutes, but you've been more than generous with the time. So I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, D. I appreciate you having me on. And really, listen, uh, your fans, don't lose it. Let's go Jets. <laughs> there you go. Oh, boy. One could only imagine what it would be like to be a star of one of the New York teams as a young 20-something in the 1980s and on posters everywhere. Not bad for a guy that never thought he'd play in the NFL, huh? Joe Klecko, what a great conversation. That was so much fun. And as we've said, you can always email us at nyaccentpod at gmail.com. Send us emails about the podcast, guests that we've had on, questions as well. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. This one comes to us from Tom, who's in Yonkers, who emails, Hey, DA, I really enjoyed the O.J. Anderson episode. You said at the end you thought he'd be a Hall of Famer one day. What do you think? What do you think's holding him back? Tom, appreciate the email. Let me just give you some of these numbers of why I think that O.J. is going to end up in the Hall of Fame one day, and then I'll tell you why I think he's not there yet. The resume is really, really impressive. First of all, he was the AP Rookie of the Year in 79. He was a first-team All-Pro that year as well. He had 1,600 rushing yards, which at the time was the most ever by a rookie. He's still the fifth highest total ever by a rookie running back, those 1,600 yards. He had 1,000 yards in five of his first six seasons, broken up only by a strike-shortened year in 82. And then had another 1,000-yard campaign with the Giants in 1989, and he won Comeback Player of the Year. All of that before he wins Super Bowl MVP honors. When he retires, he's the eighth leading rusher ever and hit that mythical 10,000-yard plateau. He's currently in the Giants' Ring of Honor. He's also in the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. That's a heck of a career. I mentioned this as well with OJ last week, and that was that there's a number of players that have rushed for fewer yards and touchdowns than him that are in the Hall of Fame. Earl Campbell, Jim Taylor, Larry Zonka, Terrell Davis, Joe Perry, Leroy Kelly, Floyd Little, John Henry Johnson, Hugh McElhenney, Gail Sayers, Lenny Moore, and Marion Motley, all are in Canton, have fewer yards than OJ. Touchdowns? There's only a few guys ahead of them in terms of touchdowns that aren't in the Hall of Fame. Adrian Peterson, who's sure to get there. Marshawn Lynch, who's likely to get there. Priest Holmes, Sean Alexander, Corey Dillon. So he's a top 20 touchdown guy of all time. And almost everybody ahead of him is in the Hall of Fame. So ultimately, because of this, I think he's going to get in. We've seen guys in recent years have everybody kind of look back, at least the, the NFL voters, and put them in. We just had Joe Klecko on this this podcast, that's certainly one of those types of guys. You've also had guys like Floyd Little, like Cliff Branch, 
who even outside of the bigger class, the, the NFL 100, Harold Carmichael as well, all of those guys in the last five years have gotten in both part of that larger NFL 100 class, but also some of the singular classes like Klecko did. So I, I think ultimately he's going to get in, but if I were to guess why he's not in, it's because the bulk of his career, the prime of his career, his really great seasons happened in St. Louis when they only made the playoffs once and were one and done, and they lost the team. You know, there's no St. Louis contingent of Cardinals fans or media still banging the drum, drum for this guy. And I think also only two Pro Bowls hurts. I think when the, when the voters come up, they look at how many times you were in the Pro Bowl or an all-decade team because that suggests that for those years, you were one of the best at the position instead of a, a quote, compiler maybe like OJ. But I don't think that's really fair. OJ might not have had the sizzle of Tony Dorsett or Walter Payton in the 1980s or Eric Dickerson, but he still put up the numbers and they're undeniable. I hope one day that he does get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. If you got a question for us, send it to us at nyaccentpod at gmail.com and we read through the emails every single week. Thanks for listening to episode three. Subscribe, rate, and review. When you see this podcast, certainly review it if you could. Hit it with five stars. That helps other people find the podcast. We appreciate it very much. Until next time, this is New York Accent, an Odyssey original podcast.